Rural Health Voice, Episode 103, Federal Office of Rural Health Policy. Welcome to the Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. Who in Washington, D.C. is working to support health care in rural communities? Tom Morris from the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy joined me to discuss how his staff provides support through information, data, and of course, grant opportunities. Well, welcome, Tom. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, we appreciate you taking time to be here. And I was looking at your background. You started your career as a newspaper reporter. How did you make the switch to health policy? Yes, it's not your normal career path for somebody working in public and community health. Uh, But there is sort of a through line there in the sense that um, I was working at a small newspaper in eastern North Carolina, and you never had the luxury of just doing one job. And so while I was starting out as a sports writer, I eventually started doing some other things because we had a small staff and there was the opportunity to do that. And one of the issues that I started writing about in sort of long form uh, sort of featured stories was about the lack of health care in eastern North Carolina, which is a, still a very rural region. And it just sort of opened my eyes, you know, as a suburban kid who grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, to go and live in an area where I was visiting counties where there were no dentists and only one doctor and the public health department was in a trailer. It was really quite eye-opening for me. And it planted the seeds in some ways for me to be very interested in the intersection of poverty and health care and what it's like to go without in this country. And so that just sort of germinated for me over the years. And eventually I decided to get out of newspapers and wanted to get into something healthcare related. And so I went back and got a master's in public administration and community health. And that began my path on working on rural health issues. And I often refer to you as the director of the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy, but that's not your official job title, is it? It has changed over the years. On paper, I'm I'm referred to as the Associate Administrator for Rural Health Policy, and that's more of an HR framing in every sense of the way. I think the easiest thing to tell people is that I direct the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy. And what is the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy? Well, the Federal Office of Rural Policy is uh, an office within, uh, we're located in the Health Resources and Services Administration. Um, But we have a pretty interesting history. Uh, We were created in 1987. There was a a period going on back then when there were a number of rural hospitals closing. I think just over 400 had closed over the course of a few years. And a lot of that was driven by two factors. One, Medicare had changed the way it was paying for hospital services. And the second was um, that we had a lot of hospitals that were built where there weren't a lot of people. And so the combination of those two factors made for a bit of a crisis in terms of figuring out what was the best way to ensure access to care. And they realized there was nobody within the HHS that was sort of looking out for rural interests. So the Congress became interested in making sure that there was somebody that at least asked questions on behalf of rural communities. And at the same time, I think the administration at that time also felt that there was a need to do this. And so Congress passed a law creating the office, and the administration then decided to place it within HRSA, the Health Resources and Services Administration. And and it really, I think, has proven to be a good decision in the sense that 
While we have a department-wide charge to advise the Secretary on rural issues, we also over the years have picked up a number of grant programs, uh, both at the state and community level, along with a rural health research program. And those things fit very well within the portfolio of HRSA because they're focused on vulnerable populations, underserved uh, areas, and that's really what our programs do. We are both a policy and a program office, and so for our grants, we look much like HRSA, but when we dive into policy issues, whether it's access to care or health equity or you, know, you name it, workforce recruitment and retention, um, we really are putting on a different hat where we sort of look across the entire enterprise of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Now, you talked about the full spectrum of what all the office does, but I know most people that I know look at FORP as, hey, grants, money, let's go get the money. And your website says that the office provides over $300 million a year to rural communities through your grant programs. What types of programs do those grant fund? Yeah, so we have a range of grant programs. Like I said, some are community-focused. Bulk of the funding is community-focused, and then some of them are focused more on states and working with rural hospitals. So let me start with the latter. One of the earliest grant programs we had was funding to provide some support for state offices of rural health. And so um, it's a unique program in the sense that the states have to provide a three-to-one match for every dollar they get from the federal government. And so Slowly, they built up till they got one state office in each of the 50 states. And it's been a good partnership because, you know, we're located in suburban Washington, D.C. How much can we really know about rural America sitting there? And so by being able to partner with the state offices, they're much closer to the ground. And so that's been a big help in that regard. And then over the years, we've been provided some funding because of the challenges rural hospitals have. And we run a lot of that funding through the state offices of rural health, through the Rural Hospital Flexibility Grant Program that works with all the critical access hospitals in the country, and then the Small Hospital Improvement Program that also provides support, not just to the CAHs, but also to other small rural hospitals. So those are our major state sort of initiatives. The bulk of our funding, though, is in our direct investments into rural communities. And that falls into two main buckets, uh, the first of which is the rural health outreach programs. These are programs that are essentially startup funding for good ideas in rural communities, funded at about $80 million a year. We inherited a really unique structure there, I think, in the sense that the people who created those programs first as a pilot before they were getting authorized into a formal program by the Congress, they had the idea that when you're working in rural communities, you're automatically you know, working at a disadvantage in some ways in terms of of capacity. And so the idea was not just to fund one organization, but to make sure you're funding a community. So all of those grants require an applicant to come in with at least three separately owned entities as part of its network or consortium. And that's proven to be a really successful approach in the sense that it creates more ownership of a project community-wide. And they all have a stake in trying to keep it going beyond the initial grant funding. And so there are a handful of grant programs that that come under that broader portfolio, rural health outreach, uh, network planning, uh, network development, and then small healthcare provider quality improvement. And then the newest addition, sort of the sister program to those, is a program focused on maternity care, the Rural Maternal Obstetrics Management Strategies Program. And so all of them sort of use the same basic approach in terms of relying on a consortium or networked approach to use funds to get something going in rural communities, 
improve access to or coordination of care. That's the main charge in the authorizing statute. And that flexibility of being able to focus more broadly on whatever the community identifies in terms of access or coordination has has really been, uh, I think, a stroke of genius by the folks who created it because the needs are so great and so diverse in rural communities. We find projects that range from you know, somebody can come in and do something around oral health. They can come in and do something around um, chronic care. They can come in and do something around behavioral health. They can address health equity. They can do a workforce project. It really does leave it wide open. And, you know, Beth, Beth I know you've, you've been successful working with a number of communities in Virginia and tapping into that funding. Folks have really been able to use it uh, over the course of a number of years to really build infrastructure in rural communities. We like to think of it as, a, in many ways, an incubator program. The funding is very competitive because, you know, a lot of people uh, see value in it. So, um, unfortunately, that means you can write a really good grant and and potentially not get funded. But by the same token, it's about the most flexible funding you can find within uh, the Department of Health and Human Services. And actually, I'd say across government because we don't categorize what you have to do. You know, the community actually identifies what it wants to do. The exception to that would be the maternity care project which really is sort of a, a unique aspect of just focusing on ways to improve you know, access to prenatal care, support maintaining access to obstetrical services in rural hospitals, and also focusing on postpartum care. And, and that program is new because we've really been trying to respond to the crisis we're seeing in terms of a lack of access to OP services in rural hospitals. But also, you know, as we all know, the, the maternal mortality rate in this country is far too high. It's even higher in rural communities, and it's even higher among women of color in rural communities. And so, um, you know, we're happy to have this funding to be able to do it, but these are really tough and challenging issues. The other community-based program we have is, is uh, relatively new. We've had it since 2018, and it's also in response to a larger uh, nationwide problem, and that is the opioid and related substance use epidemic that we see in this country. And so we realize that this issue plays out a little bit differently in rural communities where the overdose death rate is, is similar to urban communities. And among the, I think the 18 to, to 49 age group, it's even slightly higher than in urban communities. And, and I think what happens for our smaller areas is there's a lack of treatment infrastructure. And there's sometimes greater stigma attached to uh, people who are suffering through this. And so Typically, when we have a public health crisis like this, we the typical response has been to push funding to the states and then let the states who are closer to the communities themselves make the decisions through either block grants or statewide grants. And and certainly, we're still doing that in the opioid crisis. But the, the administration at the time and the Congress also thought that uh, it would be important to have direct investments into rural communities. So we took all of the lessons that we had from those rural health outreach grants and applied them on a larger scale for the Rural Community Opioids Response Program. And so that's funded at about $125 to $130 million a year. And it's really been a nice opportunity, I think, for us to make sure that rural communities that lack infrastructure uh, can get direct funding from the federal government and shape it in a way that meets their unique need. And I think the other thing that we've tried to do is really listen to the grantees and understand what they're seeing out there. Because one of the things we heard early on was it wasn't just an opioid crisis, but it was a psychostimulant crisis. There were still a lot of people that were perhaps uh, suffering from meth addiction. And so we wanted to create the flexibility to then do direct funding for unique uh, aspects of this crisis 
So uh, psychostimulants was one area we focused on. Neonatal abstinence syndrome was another area we focused on. We noted that there was a lack of access to medication-assisted treatment. So we did a specific funding just focused on getting MAT funding going in rural hospitals and clinics. And so we've been quite happy with the opportunity to provide funding to rural communities and to really see the creativity and innovation they have, again, using that sort of networked approach. And then the final grant program, I guess I'd, I'd focus on is around the workforce area. You know, we know that across the workforce, you're more likely to train where you finish your training. And so I think we've all known that if we can get more people exposed to rural training when they're students, we have a greater likelihood that they might choose to practice in rural areas. And that's particularly true when it comes to physician training. And so since 2019, we've had funding to create new rural residencies for uh, physicians. And so what we do is we provide funding to get a new residency program accredited and ready to accept residents. And then there's a provision in law that allows a new residency program in a rural hospital or a rural community to get support from Medicare to continue to cover the cost of the training for those residents. Uh, many state Medicaid programs also do this. So we've been able to create, gosh, more than 300 new residency slots in rural communities across the country uh, through this program in the last five years. And we have research showing that you're much more likely to practice in a rural community if you do your training in a rural residency. So this is one of those examples of where we have a model that's worked, that's quantified in the health services research, and that we know is having an impact in working in, in rural communities. And so we've been able to get new psychiatry residencies started. I think we have five of those. We have an internal, a number of internal and family medicine residencies, and as well as our first general surgery residency. And so we're we're looking to continue this work uh, moving forward. So that's where most of our funding falls into those 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 buckets of both state and community-based programs. That is a impressively broad spectrum of grant opportunities. Who determines what types of funding opportunities should be available? Well, there are, basically it's the Congress. I mean, they tell they provide the budget. Um, the administration will propose a budget, and the Congress may look at that and, and see if there are items they like, and then decide to put those into the budget. So, in a lot of ways, you know, a lot of this funding started with a small congressional appropriation, and then because they either liked the results or felt it had merit, they would expand those things, and that was how the rural health outreach grant uh, programs got started. I, and I did forget to mention the Rural Research Center program, which we fund. Really, it's the only program within HHS that is a research program that sol solely focuses on rural health services research, and that informs our policy role. But I think in all of these, it, it starts with an idea where we might have it and propose it in the administration's annual budget process. Sometimes it's the Congress themselves deciding with it. Sometimes it's a combination of the two. That's certainly what happened in 2018 with the opioid program. We had gotten a proposal in the president's budget to do this. It was one of those years when the budget didn't pass until March. The president had just released his budget, I think, in March. And then two or three weeks later, the congressional budget finally passed. And that was a case where they took the idea straight from the president's budget and put it into the congressional budget. And there's been great, strong bipartisan support for it every year since then. And um, so uh, there are times where it works just like it's supposed to in Schoolhouse Rock, where uh, the administration, you know, has an idea, it proposes it to Congress, Congress agrees, 
and they pass it, and then the money flows, and it goes to rural communities. It doesn't always happen that way, but it did certainly happen that way in the R-Core program. And it also happened again uh, with the, the R-Moms program, the Rural Maternal Obstetrics program. We had done this as a pilot in the Outreach Authority, and it had enough promise that the Congress then picked it up and then formally authorized it. I'm thinking you would have a lot less sleepless nights if everything happened as cleanly as it does on Schoolhouse Rock. It would be a wonderful world, wouldn't it? (laughs) It would be indeed. So with all that, how can a local organization learn about and apply for these grants? It's a good question. There there are probably a number of ways. I think, um, you know, like organizations like yours, uh, state rural health associations are a great way to get the word out. The same thing is true for state offices of rural health. We really rely very heavily on both the rural health associations and the state offices to really uh, help get the word out about our grants. But then um, we also try to get out to as many rural meetings as we can to and promote them. We work very closely with the National Rural Health Association to also promote those grants. And it really is just a constant education process because, you know, people are constantly entering this field and looking for ways to address the healthcare challenges in their rural communities. And they may not always be aware of everything that's out there. And so uh, it's an annual effort on our part to make sure that people are aware of, but not just tell them there's a grant, but sort of really help them understand how it can be leveraged. So if you um, went to the Rural Health Information Hub that we fund uh, at the University of North Dakota, we take all of our grant programs uh, for our community uh, funding And we develop what are either uh, grantee directories or source books where we do a write-up of every single grant that we fund in a cohort. And the reason I mention these is because I think they're great sources for folks if they're interested in our programs, but it sounds a bit abstract. Like if you hear the word rural health outreach or rural community opioids response, you sort of have a sense of what it's about, but it doesn't really help you think about how you would make that happen in your community. And so I often tell folks, Take a look at our source books and our grantee directories. They have contact information for folks we funded in the past. And, you know, steal as many of those ideas as possible. Call those folks up. See if they'll share their grant application with you. It's a great way to sort of learn from what others have done. Now, I mentioned, you know, unfortunately, there is a fair amount of competition for this funding. One of the ways that we can have a win-win is that if, People in rural communities who are working in these issues want to be a grant reviewer for HRSA. All of our grants are reviewed by people from or who are aware of rural health issues. We don't make the decisions on grants. Uh, They're decided by an objective review committee of their peers. And so we are constantly looking for folks to help us review those grants. And that helps us make sure that people who understand rural are helping us decide who should get funded. But they're also a great educational opportunity for people to become a better grant writer because you'll be reviewing, you know, 15, 20, 25 grants. And you do that enough times and you learn what works and you learn what doesn't. And then the hope is that you can then take that back the next time you try to apply as well. So those are probably some of the ways I would recommend that people do that. The other thing is, you know, we work for the public. So if anybody ever had a question... Uh, they, they should definitely contact us. We're always happy to jump on a call and talk people through and try to explain the programs in a way that, that will hopefully resonate with them. 
Certainly, anytime I've contacted your staff with questions about a grant application, they've, they've been very helpful. You mentioned the need for reviewers. If someone was interested in being a reviewer, what do they need to do? Well, we have on our website, at the HRSA website, you can go into grants and there's, there's a tab for if you want to become a reviewer. And, and I'd certainly encourage people to do that. But if they decide they want to be a reviewer, I would ask them to also uh, drop me an email. And my email is t-m-o-r-r-i-s at hrsa.gov because that database is really large and it covers all of HRSA. So we have to know you're in there to go then pick you for a review. So certainly sign up um, with the database, but then drop me an email. I will connect you with our grants coordinator, and then we'll make sure that we're aware that you're in there so that when it comes time to look for reviewers, and we are doing this on an annual basis, we'll know to pull your name. Yeah, VHA, as you mentioned, has been very fortunate to be successful with grant applications to your office. Over the years, we've had a few planning grants, some of the grants related to the opioid crisis, and the new public health workforce grant. But, you know, we've been turned down certainly as as often as we've been accepted, if not more. One of the problems with competitive grants is the capacity needed to apply for the funds. You know, VRHA is fortunate that we've got good writers in-house, but how does a small rural organization compete with a larger institute with professional grant writers on staff? You know, this is a topic you and I have discussed a number of times. Um, it, it is one of the conundrums out there, and it's not, I don't think it's specific to our funding. I think it's across the board. I think it's true with foundations as well, in that often the communities that are the greatest in need lack the capacity to get the funding that would address their very dire challenges. I wish I had a a silver bullet to solve that uh, issue. All I can do is, you know, I think we want to keep trying to simplify our notice of funding opportunities so that it's easier for folks to apply for. I think the other thing we want to do is is make sure that people are aware of uh, the level of competition. And then uh, what I'm trying to say there is that if you're a small rural organization and say you're having a challenge with opioids or a challenge in terms of managing chronic disease, you probably have the capacity to put together one good grant application that year. But there may be five opportunities that are out there. And so you have to make a very tough decision about which one you go for. And when you put all your eggs in that basket, like you've noted, and then you don't get funding, that's a real setback. And so, you know, we certainly understand that. So anything we can do to help people figure out if they're ready, I think we're willing to get on the phone and talk through that. I think there is an opportunity to sort of be strategic about it. And then, you know, we've also had folks who have come in and maybe scored like 92 on their first time and missed the funding by like four points, but then they come back the next time and they, and they get it. That's not a perfect answer to the dilemma that you're posing, but we want to try anything we can. And then the other thing is just making Congress and other folks aware that there's great interest in these programs and, and here's what's happening in terms of who we can fund and who we can't fund. You know, that's another part of the equation as well. Well, and certainly, you know, having been through the process several times, I would recommend, you know, if there's a grant opportunity out there that's not necessarily an exact fit and you're, you're not going to put the effort to put in a, an application, 
But if you want to learn more about these grants, I would recommend people actually write it up anyway, just to get used to how the process works. You know, one of the things I really like about the grant applications at your office is they're all structured in the same way. So learning how to pull the narrative together, learning how to develop the work plan, figuring out all the different attachments you need and how they need to be formatted, just Going through that sort of practice application before you're ready to put in a full one, I would highly recommend that people do that. Yeah, that's it. I, I agree. I mean, it's it, it's a lot of work, um, but it is a good way to sort of get used to the to the to the approach on these things. And there are a lot of you know, there's a lot of different pieces of it that if you've never applied before, maybe a little bit unfamiliar in terms of the budget process or what it's like to put together a staffing plan, those sort of things, and so. You know, the more familiar you get with it, the better. I will say, you know, that like VRHA and probably, I can probably name about 20 or 30 other organizations that have come in multiple times. They don't get funded every time, but once they get used to the cadence of the application and what's being asked for, they are able to tap into the funding multiple times. And so there, there is a value in that too. The other thing is, I think, partnering with successful organizations. So... I would advise any community that's coming in as a first-time applicant to first reach out to their, their rural health association and to their state offices of rural health to see if anybody else nearby is doing the same thing. Uh, are there partnership opportunities with that? Sometimes it may be easier to partner with another organization that maybe has a little bit more capacity uh, as a way to start getting a, a, a foot in the, in the right direction in terms of this funding. Yeah, you alluded to this before when you were talking about the state office of rural health, but again, your offices are in the D.C. suburbs. How do you and your staff stay connected to what's going on in rural communities? The most important thing we try to do is just to listen. Even if we're sitting in, a, in an office or now we're sitting in our homes as much as we're sitting in the office, but um, you know, listening to people, I think attending meetings, whether they're virtual or in person, are, are critically important. Uh, we do a lot of site visits just to learn more about rural communities. Even we do site visits with our grantees. So I think we're always learning in that way. The other thing is that we also staff the Secretary's National Advisory Committee on Rural Health and Human Services. And that's a 21-member citizens committee that makes recommendations to HHS on rural health and human service issues. And so twice a year, that committee goes out into the field and takes on you know one or two topics and produces a policy brief that goes to the secretary. And I've been staffing that committee since the day I walked in the door in 1998. And so it's taken me across the country. And I probably learned as much from, from just getting out there and, and listening to people. And all of that, then I take back and try to help inform our process for how we fund our grants. Aside from your office, what other resources would you recommend for people in rural communities? You know, if you just think about rural health funding in the context of the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy, it really is just the, the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we're happy to have every one of our $300 million that we have in our budget. But when you think about the needs of rural communities, we could spend all of that in Virginia alone and maybe have an impact, you know, in terms of really uh, changing outcomes. So then to spread that across the 50 states and the territories and working with tribal organizations, you know, it's really challenging. So I think it's important to look more broadly at the funding that is available, you know, across HHS. 
And so I'll mention just a couple programs. Many people have heard of the Community Health Center program that is housed in HRSA, and the health centers are a critically important part of the the rural health care safety net um, and, and often apply for many of our grants as well. They often are organizations that could be a good partner for you in applying for grant funding. Thinking about what the health centers can do is really important. For instance, last year they had a, a grant competition to do more cancer screening and cancer care coordination. And so, um, you know, seeing what money is coming down for the health centers may provide partnership opportunities as well. Uh, we talked about maternal health earlier, and so there's a, there's there's funding within our maternal and child health bureau uh, for grants that are called Healthy Start, which work with uh, young moms and families to really get off to the right start. Uh, we have a home visiting program where we provide funding to the states to then do visits with moms and newborns. And the states make the decisions about the allocation of those funding. And I think in some ways, the advisory committee just did a, uh, is getting ready to release a policy brief on this. In some ways, I, I worry sometimes that the home visiting piece of that is not part of the larger rural health care policy discussion. It's almost like a separate thing. And so they're really doing great work in terms of improving outcomes for early childhood development. So, you know, how do we get sort of the bulk of the folks that we work with in the in the rural health stakeholder world to also be talking to the people in the early childhood world? Because all of these things are, are linked, whether we're talking about social determinants or vital conditions, which is a new framing of that same issue. So, you know, that funding is worth looking at as well. We've talked about workforce earlier. The Bureau of Health Workforce and HRSA puts out a, a significant amount of funding. We've seen a significant increase in recent years uh, for health profession training, uh, particularly in the area of behavioral health. And so if you're working on workforce or if you, you know, you're, you're, you're dealing with these challenges, those dollars often go to academic institutions. But one of the requirements is that they fund rotations for their clinical training as well. And so one of the goals we have in HRSA is to make sure that we link more rural hospitals and rural clinics up with the grants that are funded to colleges and universities, whether it's for nursing or physician training or behavioral health, really run the gamut. How do we create more of those academic community partnerships? Because I think there's a real opportunity there to, to, to do more rural training. And then even looking out beyond HRSA, obviously SAMHSA is an important funder in terms of the, um, you know, whether it's mental health or substance abuse, behavioral health. A lot of that funding is state-focused, but that doesn't mean there aren't partnership opportunities. There is a website at HHS called TAGS, T-A-G-G-S. And what you can do with TAGS is it's a, it's a, a um, HHS-wide database, and there's a tool on it that allows you to look at, at a statewide basis by program, by agency, by year, and you could do a rural-urban breakdown, and you can find out how many discretionary grants are going to rural communities. And then you can print that out in a spreadsheet, and you'll know about what grants have been funded in recent years in your state. So that may create opportunities to learn more about what they're doing and then maybe come in for future funding under that. But it also is a way to create more awareness about some of the other grant programs, whether it's at SAMHSA, whether it's at the Agency for Health Research and Quality, other grants within HRSA. If we think about social determinants, there are grants in our administration for children and families around uh, access to child care, community action agencies, a lot of ways to address some of the challenges of low-income families. Um, in our administration for community living, uh, that's the program that has like Meals on Wheels, programs for people that are, have disabilities, 
uh, as well as programs that serve the aging. And so there's a broad range of funding out there. And I think becoming more familiar with those grants, becoming more familiar with the, the entities that they fund is a way to sort of be more aware of how to tap into a broader range of funding. And then, you know, occasionally we see funding in, in non-health agencies that has a healthcare angle to it. Last year, the Housing and Urban Development put out funding that looked at unsheltered people, but with social determinants focus. And so they put money into their community-based housing organizations, but they had to partner with health entities as well. USDA is a big funder of healthcare activities through its rural development branch, but they also have a rural housing program. And we all hear about the challenges of rural housing. So there is a broad range of, of funding out there. It takes a, 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 a creative approach to sort of figure out how best to connect all the dots. The Rural Health Information Hub, I think, does a great job of sort of promoting those activities and, and highlighting and, and summarizing some of those programs that are out there. So that's another resource that people could consider as well. Great. Yeah, I, I go Rural Health Information Hub is pretty much my first anything for anything related to rural health. All right. So last question. If you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and health care in rural America? I think the one thing that I, I think would really help would be more capacity building for community organizations. I want to get back to the point you made earlier about this whole balance that we have to find between need, uh, but then accountability, you know, make sure the dollars are spent the right way and meet the intended purpose. And I'm not saying those things are in conflict, but they, the, there's a dynamic tension between them. And so if we could do more capacity building with at the community level and increase that capacity, I think we could level the playing field a bit so that places with great need but limited capacity would have just as equal a chance of getting funding and connecting the dots in this funding as more well-resourced entities as well. And something like that is not easy to do, nor is it inexpensive. But as I look back over the years I've done this, it's the one area where I think we could really have a significant impact moving forward. And we hope to try to do a small pilot in this area in the coming year, working with the National Rural Health Association to sort of embed, in essence, coaches to help people think through how to connect all these dots and what sort of skill sets are needed. And the hope that in doing that in a handful of communities, you know, that we can build the capacity that longer term will allow them to then be future coaches to other communities. I love it. Support people so they can continue to do more with what they got. Thank you, Tom. So much appreciate you spending the time with us today. Great. Thank you for the opportunity. That's Tom Morris advocating for capacity building in our rural communities. If you want to learn about upcoming grant opportunities through his office or other entities, subscribe to the BRHA newsletter. It is free for all of our members. Visit the show notes for links to membership information.